Uh, Turn this morning to Mark chapter 3 if you're not already there. Uh, We're going to be reading, continuing uh, where we left off where we left off last week, and we're, we're going to be beginning in verse 20. We're going to read down through verse 35. Again, uh, it may seem like an odd passage to you because there are two stories here, uh, and, and they may seem to be different, uh, but again, as we've seen multiple times, I, I think that uh, things are structured in this book t- together in, in large part for very specific reasons, and I think that you really can't understand what goes on from verses 22 to 29 or 30, which seems to be sort of a separate story that's in the midst of of bracketed by a different story. But I I really think that in order to get those verses in the middle, you have to include the ones that are around them. I think these stories go together, and so we're going to study them together and see how they inform our perspectives on things uh, today. So we're going to jump right in. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray simply this morning that you would open your word to us, or that as we come to your table that is prepared, uh, that we would do so in a worthy manner, or that you would uh, remove the sin that clouds our vision, that you would feed us to the full, uh, Lord, that we would be strengthened and encouraged in our faith, that, that we would be ever about your business. And so we pray that this passage this morning would inform our perspective on uh, who you are and what you've done on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 3, beginning of verse 20. Let's take a look at the scripture together. It says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless... He first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him, And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now I'm excited to preach this text this morning because it's a text of such confusion and controversy. Uh, You may be excited to hear it. What am I going to say about the unpardonable sin, right? This is a text that freaks us all out. We we, uh, are terrified of what the implications of this text may be. Uh, In in my opinion, we're very unclear about what the text actually gives us and what it is that maybe we should rightly be terrified of. And so we're going to take some time this morning to unpack the issues about this unpardonable sin. And that's going to take, it's going to be done at length. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, 
That's only part of the sermon, uh, right? It's only part of all of the passage that we read, and we're going to have to be informed by all of it in order to understand the part about the unpardonable sin. I think that it, I think that it helps us. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to sort of speedily work through the other parts so that we can get down to the part about the unpardonable sin and we can give it its uh, justice there and then taking our time to deal with it. However, by way of introduction, let me just say this. Uh, let, me, let me give you a reminder. If you were with us or have been with us, um, then you would remember, and if you haven't, it's fine. I'm going to tell you again this morning. But you would remember that when we introduced the Gospel of Mark, that one of the things that I showed you or said to you about it is that uh, it was probably in all likelihood the first written account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So that as the apostles were dying off, historically sort of, if you think about a timeline, as the apostles, those who were commissioned, the eyewitnesses who walked and talked with Jesus that were commissioned to build his church, as they began to be martyred and were sort of dwindling away, um, then, then, then it became important for someone to write down their eyewitness accounts, to take down their story, um, right, so that we can know who the real Jesus is. And so Mark then, he moves at this light speed pace because he's simply trying to introduce us to the person and work of Jesus, which is why I chose uh, or felt led to choose for us together as the first thing that we would study is a picture of Jesus, the gospel of Mark, the, the king that's come and what he's come to do and who he's come to be. And so I just think that there's no better place in the New Testament for us to find who the real Jesus is than in the gospel of Mark, because I think that it was fundamentally written, at least sort of the big picture about why it was written. I think that it was written so that we would have a picture of the real Jesus, the historical Jesus. Now, there have been all sorts of efforts, as I told you, over the years in history to identify the real Jesus, both historically uh, in times gone by and also very recently. There was uh, a, law, a lengthy special on the History Channel, the search for the real Jesus. The idea that there's a fake Jesus is pretty humorous to me. Um, so that it seems to be insinuated or necessitated by the fact that there's a real Jesus and we need to find him. But I think what we're going to see this morning is what's meant by that is, is that there are many, many different views or perspectives about who Jesus is. And that simply by way of logic, there can only be one that's true, right? We know that. Uh, I've always used the illustration with teenagers and with adults in the years of ministry that I've had. You know, I, I look around this congregation this morning and I see friends and family. You know, if I've told you about my Brother Matt, that I like to think of him as short and, uh, you know, kind of plump and uh, no gray hair at all and couldn't sing a lick or play the guitar, but, you know, uh, really didn't like people too much, but was a great guy. Well, I mean, that's fine if I want to think about him that way. The problem is that all of those things are wrong, right? There is a Matt. He does have lots of gray hair, and he's not short and plump, you know, and so... Um, there is a reality that's Matt, and, and, and it behooves us that if we're going to know him, we must know him as he is. And that's kind of what I'm arguing for, this search for the real Jesus, that we can encounter him as he is, or maybe as he was, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, the biblical testimony, however, uh, only gives us sort of a couple of, of options, and I'm going I'm to make those known to you in just a moment. Uh, but the, the reason, right, that, that there are so many different perspectives, there's a couple that we find in the Bible, but then there's so many others that so many other people have come up with over history. The question then is why, right? Why are there so many different perspectives on who Jesus is? And I think, the, I think if you boil it all down, the reason is because uh, of the magnitude of what he claimed, right? If you think about it, his claims were utterly ridiculous, 
I mean, you're talking to a guy that claimed to be God, right? claimed to be able to do things that only God could do, claimed to fulfill prophecies that only God could fulfill, that in fact God had spoken. His claims were so outrageous that people have sort of been forced to say, well, that simply cannot be the real deal. That, that, that's Something has to have gone awry. Something has to have been written in or taken out. Something is missing because his claims are just so outrageous. Um, you know, and so you have all these different perspectives, uh, you know, however, the reality is that if the, the testimony of the Bible, uh, if the claims that he makes in scripture, if they are correct, uh, the reality is then that there are grave implications for how people respond to him. I mean, it's, it's the classic question that, you know, you can think whatever you want to think about Jesus, but at the end of the day, are you willing to die with that opinion? Right. You know, I mean, I love Jesus. I think he's the only way to be saved. I think that he came and lived and he died. And you know what? If I die and that's incorrect, which it is not. But let's say, let's hypothetically say that the claims of the scripture are wrong. I haven't lost anything. You know, if an unbeliever who rejects the testimony of the Bible and says that it's false, if he dies, he's taking a grave risk. Because if those claims are true, and he, he will find, find out one day. There are grave implications for what will come and how we must respond to him. And so, uh, you know, the reality is rather than being subject to a Jesus uh, that is the divine son of God, the ruler and savior of all of creation, uh, the Lord that we find in the Bible, uh, we discount the testimony of the Bible and we create another Jesus for ourselves. Uh, and then we claim to have found the real Jesus. And so that's essentially what people have done. However, in this text, so here, here, here we go. In this text, we get a couple of the biblical, uh, and I would argue maybe the only two real perspectives on Jesus that we see other than the one that Jesus gives himself. And that's going to be the, the structure then for our study then this morning. This is a text then about the real Jesus. And in it, there are three views. First, his family offers one view of who he is. Second, the scribes offer a second view of who he is. And then finally, Jesus himself offers the correct view of who he is. And then a fourth point that we're going to get to very briefly at the end. as then it, So Jesus offers the correct view of who, who he is himself. And then number four, he invites us to get it. He invites us to get it and to do something with that revelation, with that knowledge. So let's first consider very quickly together uh, that his family offers one view of of who he is. Let's just go right to the text. It says that then the multitude came together again. Remember, they were pressing against him so much that he worried about them, and he told the disciples to get a boat ready so they could retreat onto the boat, and he ends up retreating somehow onto a mountain with his 12 disciples, and he calls them and appoints them to their discipleship. And so it says the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as even eat bread. But then here it is. But when his own people, that's uh, the language for his kinsmen, so it's most likely his family, maybe uh, one of his brothers, maybe his uh, mother Mary, maybe his earthly father, uh, who knows, probably someone that was related to him, uh, his kinsmen, when they heard about this, and I don't think that's specifically what's going on at that moment, when they heard about the crowd that was pressing against him because of all the outrageous things that he'd been doing and saying, right, they went out, and then it says to lay hold of him. And, and that's very interesting. That's the language of arresting someone. To bind him, it says. They went out to bind him, to, to, to take him captive. For they said, and then here's their perspective, he is out of his mind. So his family says that he's crazy. 
Um, th this brings to mind what is known as the trilemma. You may or may not have ever heard of that, but it was, uh, it's a theory that's put out by C.S. Lewis over the years, a very famous Christian author who writes uh, fiction and nonfiction alike. He writes children's uh, novels that are very, very familiar and uh, well-known to most of us. But, but he, he, he had a theory, and, and he wrote about what was called the trilemma, where he suggests that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And that those are really logically the only three options that we have as people, right? That either he's crazy, he's a lunatic, he's out of his mind, that something is going on, that all the bolts are not tightened down, that the elevator doesn't make it all the way to the top floor, that there are issues in his head, and that maybe he thinks something of himself that simply is not the case, and so he makes these outrageous claims. Or he's simply a charlatan, a liar, who was going about and deceiving people with claims that he knew to be false, but that he made anyway, and doing magic and deceiving people with all of these miracles and ridiculous things that he seemed to be doing that seemed to be true. So either he's crazy or he's a liar. Or, or If he's not lying and he's not out of his mind and those things have actually happened, then the only plausible explanation is that he's the Lord and, and he is to be responded to appropriately. So, so it brings to mind what's called the trilemma. And so part of that trilemma we see here, they say that he is a lunatic. Right? They offer their assessment that he's insane. And let me, uh, let me simply caution you not to be too hard on the family. Uh, this, is a reasonable, this is a reasonable thought. Okay? I, I just want to encourage you to think about if you had a family member that was going about in all of the region of Gulfport and Biloxi and D'Iberville that claimed to be God, that claimed to be able to forgive sins, that was willing to touch the leper and heal him, you'd be thinking he was crazy too. I mean, if my brother was claiming those things, we would, we would have to have a talk, you know, and we would probably try to find a padded room for him somewhere so that he didn't hurt himself and so that some other people didn't, didn't hurt him. You, you see, don't, don't be too hard on the family because this is a reasonable thing for them to think that this, 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 this part of their family, this member of their family is going about in all of the region and he is building this amazing following of People that are, as we've seen, they're following him looking for very different things with very different agendas, but it is because of these outrageous claims that he's making and these incredible things that he's doing. And they have decided, first of all, that he is simply, uh, that he is simply insane. The, the second thing that I want you to consider, though, about this reality uh, is that this is really detrimental to the testimony of Jesus. I want you to think about what it would have been like in a, in a culture like theirs that was so family-oriented, right? Your identity, you know, who you were, what you did, your place of prominence, how you were thought of in the community had very little to do with who you were, but it had a great deal to do with who your family was. So, so that we were viewed collectively, you know, y'all are the Sapleys, and we have a certain... Uh, perspective and thought about the Sackleys, and it would be very hard to escape that. And so for someone to show or to write about or to point out that there was this incredible division in a family that they were laying hold of and apprehending one of their own to sort of take away so that the people would not continue to think this way about him, so that he would not be continuing to promote this uh, this sort of outrageous agenda that he was promoting and these claims that he was making, this would have been very difficult for Jesus to sort of um, deal with. It would have been very detrimental to who he was. Uh, 
you know, it, it, it would have been, it, it been, been very difficult all the way around. But what I want you to see uh, also is that there is another view of Jesus that, that we hold that is not found in either of the two that I'm going to give you this morning, but that I think it's important for us to talk about. That's not a liar, lunatic, or Lord, but, but it's altogether different, and it's sort of its own animal, but it's definitely the most popular and prevalent view of Jesus in our day, and I think it's important to point it out here. What? We, we're not going to say that he's crazy, that he was out of his mind. We're not going to just say he was a charlatan or a liar. We're certainly not going to call him Lord, because then that would demand our subjection and submission to him. So what do we do? Well, we say that he was just a good teacher, you know, that he was a teacher of peace, that he was a good man, that he was maybe even a guru, right? but that he was just a man and that he was just a teacher. Now, what, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that there is an overwhelming evidence, both historically but more importantly biblically, to go against that. So that what we do is we simply do away with the testimony of the Bible as being made up. Okay, So that what we read about Jesus, all of these outrageous claims, the fact that he healed lepers and brought forth withered hands and brought people forth from the dead and claimed to be God and at his baptism the heavens opened up and God spoke to him and appointed him and all of this miraculous stuff, we can't think that he's only a man and only a teacher of peace and prosperity and someone maybe to be followed, a guru. We can't, we can't support that view if the Bible is true. So what do we do? We just say, oh, well, the Bible is just a fable. The, the Bible is old. They have, you know, we can't verify that it's been well-preserved. And so we just discount the testimony of Scripture altogether, that we do away with the Jesus of the Bible, so that then we come up with the idea that, well, we have found the historical Jesus. If you hear that language, that, that just means they found the real Jesus, and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. He was made up. There was this other Jesus in history that was a man, and he was a good teacher, but he did not do all of these outrageous things. So that's sort of the most prevalent in our day, where we just do away with the testimony of the Bible altogether, and we create our own view where we sort of search for the historical Jesus. So nobody really knows what that means or has any way to prove that. Most of what we know about Jesus comes from the Bible. So when you do away with the Bible, you do away with the person, uh, the revelation of the guy, Jesus. But anyway, so they offer this first, that he is a lunatic, that he's insane. Now, also a part of the lunatic is the second view of Jesus that we see in this text, and that is the view of the scribes. They offer up a second view of who he is. Look at what it says in the text. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, right, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. Now, I told you that it's very peculiar because this is actually a different story beginning in verse 22. So when you get, when you get to the end of verse 21, there's a break in the story, and that story about his own family and the discussion about family doesn't pick up until verse 31. So there's this interlude of a different story. And so the question is, why then is it there? Well, I'm going to try to build the logic, I think, that's going on in the text for you. But initially what we see is, first, that there's a view of the family, that he's, that he's out of his mind. Second, and it's sort of a subset of being a lunatic, that he is possessed by demons. And this view is offered up by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this view that he is uh, possessed or evil or wicked, uh, it reflects, I believe, their burning hatred for Jesus and their desire to kill him. Right? They weren't willing to say simply that he was crazy because they didn't kill crazy people. They tried to help them. They tried to corral them. They tried to keep them from hurting themselves. 
But the scribes and the religious leaders of the day, they had a very different agenda that we've seen come to a head already in the Gospel of Mark. And their purpose, the intent and purpose of their heart was to do what? They had plotted together with the Herodians, we saw just two sermons ago, to kill Jesus. So that they had a single unified focus and a purpose and a goal. And I think that that goal is sort of seen here that they immediately go to the most extreme that they can because guess what? You could kill someone who was demon-possessed, right? If, if he was walking around and disrupting and blaspheming God, right? Because, because if he was demon-possessed, then he wasn't God, and it would have been the demons crying out, claiming to be God. You see the problem here? So they were making these blasphemous claims, right? And so that they were looking for a reason to bring him up on charges worthy of death, right? So I, I think you see the second view here. It reflects their burning hatred from him, uh, that his claim is that he's God, that he's actually been doing, uh, you know, these things that only God could do, or at least some other worldly power as far as they were concerned. And so they have to find some other worldly solution to the problem. The scribes were not going to deny they had seen the leper that came back into the temple. You know, they, they had seen what Jesus had done, and they knew that only God could do these things. But they certainly weren't going to call him God and subject to his lordship. So they had to come up with some other some other reason, and so they come up with this charge that he is in fact demon possessed that he is working evil and wickedness and that he works by the power of the devil so that's another view that we find in the bible those are the two opposing views here but then thirdly here we go jesus himself offers the correct view of who he is back to the text verse 23 so he called them this being jesus to himself and he said to them in parables now uh, the word parable here, don't, don't let that scare you. It, it, it simply means that he spoke to them in a metaphor. Okay, that's going to be the way that we're going to think about this. He spoke to them in a metaphor, and I'm going to try to explain to you the metaphor that he made. Let's read it. He says, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he has an end. For no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, what is this metaphor about? Well, Jesus is making a metaphor in which he is picturing Satan as a strong man who has rule over a kingdom. And in that kingdom that he rules, in his castle, he has prisoners or captives. So that he is a strong man in his kingdom, in his home, where he keeps in his prison prisoners or captives. Satan is the strong man then. We, sinners, are the captives. And then there is one who comes to bind the strong man. And that is Jesus. Now this is fascinating. This is, this is very, very interesting. Because it calls on the language of the prophecy from Genesis 3.15. Now here's what I want you to think about. What happens at the story of creation in the beginning? God makes everything that is. He makes man and woman in his own image. It's the crown of his creation. He sets them in the garden. And then the serpent comes along and tempts them. They fall through the temptation. They eat of the tree of life. And they are <coughs> condemned to die eternally, forever. They stand opposed to God and under his judgment. But then God comes to them in the garden and he seeks them out to find them, to give them an opportunity for repentance and restoration because he intends to save them. Right? Why did God come? He, he came to them. He could have just left them and killed them. 
Why did God come to them in the garden? Because he intended to find them so he could save them. And then he hands down the judgment. And then if you get to Genesis 3.15, what does he say? He says to the serpent that there is one who is coming. And though you may bruise his heel, what will he do? He will crush your head. That's the first prophecy of Jesus in all of the scriptures. What? Jesus prophesied that though the serpent is strong, he is going to send one who is stronger. That though the serpent does a little damage to the heel of the strong one, the strong one brings a fatal blow upon the head of the strong man. So that there is one mightier than him. And so Jesus, recalling for these Jewish people who would have been very knowledgeable, much more so than any of us, of the Old Testament and of Genesis 3.15, he brings to their mind the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, and you know what he's saying to them? I am the strong man. I am the fulfillment of the prophecy from Genesis chapter 3. And I am coming to bear and to bring a fatal blow to the head of the strong man that holds you captive. So that Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises to deliver us from the strong man. Then, right, if that is the case, then he is the supreme ruler. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is God almighty. He is able to do all the things that he's claimed to do. And then then listen. He is worthy of our allegiance. Right? His family thought he was crazy. The scribes thought he was demon possessed and that he was working by the demon. And he says, no, no, no. I'm God Almighty and I've come to deliver the captives. I am the strong man. And I can go into the house of the one that thinks he is strong. And I can bind him so that I can plunder his house and take all of his captives and set them free and rule them and love them and care for them in a way that he never could. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, remarkable picture. And it is in this context, okay, so now we're going to get to the unpardonable sin part. It's in this context of who Jesus is that he gives us not only his view of himself, but he explains to us about the unpardonable sin. I think the context is key to understanding what comes next. So now let's let's take, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, let's take a, the last 10 minutes or so that we have and try to unpack the unpardonable sin. Let's look at the text. What does he say next? The next words out of his mouth, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Right? This is terrifying language. How is it that Jesus can be claiming, right? Isn't the whole point of the gospel that there is forgiveness for sin in Christ? That if you will repent of your sin and turn to him, that there is forgiveness in Jesus and his blood on the cross? Is that not the point of the gospel? Well, yes, it is. So how can Jesus be claiming that there then is some sin that people can do for which there is no forgiveness? Well, In order to determine first what it is, we're going to consider what it is not. Many have suggested that this is the sexual sin of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because sexual deviancy, it says there, is a sin against the body, which is the temple of what? The Holy Spirit. 
So that it's a sin against the Holy Spirit, right? So people have argued that. That is not, I don't believe that that's correct. Many, many people suggest maybe that this is suicide, that it is the unforgivable sin. Uh, Suicide is no less forgivable than murdering anybody else. It's the sin of murder. It's the sin of uh, taking God's role in beginning and ending life upon yourself. Uh, If I kill you or if I kill me, it is still a sin of murder. And we know from the testimony, both of the word of God, uh, that there is forgiveness for murderers. Uh, There is forgiveness for murderers, those that will repent of of their sin. Um, So so it's not suicide, as as many have claimed. Others have suggested uh, many things over history, anti-Semitism or hatred of the Jews, uh, many disbelief in miracles. Right? Because miracles working kind of in this life of the Holy Spirit, and if you disregard the miracles that Jesus did, then that's the ultimate blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness. Uh, others have, l- let me find one place here, others, others have said uh, that it is not accepting the words of the prophets and preachers. Why? Because they speak under the influence of the Holy Spirit, so that as he leads and gives them unction and power, they speak and teach and lead. And if you're not willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, that's the ultimate blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I would say that I don't think that's it either. Or you may be like me, and I think this is probably the most uh, the most normal or regular evangelical Christian view of the unpardonable sin. I, I thought for many years that it was simply con- continuing in a state of unbelief until death. Right? Because once you die, there is no opportunity for repentance or forgiveness. So certainly that is an unforgivable state, but it, it cannot simply be continuing in uh, unrepentance or disbelief today because it is not biblically possible or allowable. And I, I, after doing some study, listen to some of the things that I've learned over the last several years, uh, that it's not a legitimate answer. Think about Matthew twelve thirty two, where the Bible tells us, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will neither be forgiven what? In this age or the age to come. Well, now that's fascinating. If it was simply existing and continuing in unbelief so that in the age to come there was no more repentance and that was the sin that he was speaking of about being the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, that doesn't square with Matthew 12, 32 and other places in the Bible that speak about a sin that can be committed today for which there is no forgiveness today. Well, that's staggering, right? So I don't think that that can be it. Think about 1 John 5, 16, where it explains to us that there is a sin in this life for which it is pointless to pray because the sin puts us beyond repentance. 1 John 5, 16. Fascinating, isn't it? So that there is something that Jesus is speaking about as the unpardonable sin that actually has its effect in hardening our hearts and the removing of the Holy Spirit today, the Bible teaches, for which there is no repentance. And the issue of repentance, I think, is the issue that is at stake here. Why is the unpardonable sin unforgivable? I think it's because it's unrepentable. Listen, if it's a sin that removes us beyond repentance so that we cannot repent of it, then we cannot be forgiven, right? Let's think a little further. So what is it? Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. It's important for you to... Uh, see this, that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making this up here. Hebrews chapter 6. I think the best way to answer difficult questions about the Bible is to let the Bible answer them. So I've given you Matthew 12. I've given you 1 John 5. And now I'm going to give you Hebrews chapter 6, where it actually explains to us a situation in, where, in which someone has been removed or taken beyond the place of repentance. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning of verse 4. 
Listen to these words if you're not there. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So there it is. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. Now look. To renew them again to repentance. You see that? So that they've done something that has put them beyond repentance. That's, that's fascinating. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, they put him to an open shame. Well, while we may not be able to say exactly what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is or is not, I think we can get very close in general terms. Let me, let me, give, you, let me give you a couple of things. It is some deliberate grieving of the Holy Spirit and think about this. This is how does it fit into the context? I was arguing about a, a discussion of who the, the identity of Jesus, who he is. Why? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? He opens our minds to the light of what? Who Jesus is. Do you, do you see how this fits into the context very neatly? Right? So that if, as Hebrews chapter 6 says, we by the ministry of the Holy Spirit have been made to taste of the good word of God. That we have been enlightened to the truth of who Jesus is. That we have been given by grace to see what he's accomplished for us. That there is some deliberate, continual rejection of that truth in light of having it been made known to us by the Holy Spirit. Where we so grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh... That once the ministry has been performed in our hearts, we can grieve him so much and so badly to the point of rejecting the message that he will withdraw forever and never return to minister this truth to us again. Uh, that, that's about the best I, I can do for you. We don't, we don't know what that is. Uh, specifically, we, we know that if the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to enlighten our hearts to the truth of who Jesus is in Hebrews chapter 6 and all the things that we've read up to this point, what it, what it tells us is this, is that there is some point when God, by his grace through the ministry of the Spirit, when he reveals to us the truth of the good word of God and enlightens us by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are made knowledgeable of the reality of who Jesus is, that we can continue to reject that message to the point that we are so hardened and the Holy Spirit is so grieved that we cannot be repentant and he will not continue to minister. And, and, and in that place... And in that place, there is, no more, there is no more repentance. Do you see that? I can't nail down for you what it is, but, 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 but that from the Scripture, I think, is at least what we know. And so then we see verse 29 of the text where he says, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never asks forgiveness. Let me simply say this. I do not think that verse 29 is an exception to verse 28. What does he say in verse 28? Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. I think that's the truth of the gospel. So then how can he then say, but there's this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that there will be no forgiveness because there is no repentance. How does that fit in? It's not an exception to verse 28. Listen, it's a clarification of verse 28. It's not an exception to verse 28. It is a clarification of verse 28. So that what he is saying is, is that, if we are made able to repent 
and we are not hardened to the point of non-repentance, there is most certainly forgiveness. Do you see that? But in the situation where we are so hardened and the Holy Spirit is so grieved and that ministry is no longer active in our lives, that there is no more repentance and thus there is no more forgiveness. So that it's simply a clarification on verse 28, not an exception of something that you know could, may happen to us. And I'm going to speak to that in, in just a moment. Now, Question very quickly, what do we do in light of this information? What do we do with this? Number one, it should not freak us out. Okay. It shouldn't freak us out. It does. It should not freak us out. What it should do is it should simply bring about a holy awareness and a fear of sin. It should help us to see this. Our sin and our rejection of Christ and his word and his gospel is a very serious thing is a very serious thing. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. That's the testimony of the Bible. Do not love the world, but pursue after Jesus. I'm going to give you an illustration that John Piper gives, and it's, it's only as only he can. Listen to this quote and listen to this illustration. He says that those... Speaking about those who are committing the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, trying to help people understand. He says they are like the buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. And so he lands on the ice and he begins to eat. But he knows it is very dangerous because the falls, the waterfalls, are just ahead. But he looks at his wings and he says to himself in arrogance, I can fly to safety in an instant whenever I want. And he goes on eating. And then just before the ice goes over the waterfalls, he spreads his wings to fly, only to realize that his claws are frozen to the ice and that there is no escape, neither in this age nor in the age to come. And so he says, the spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever. The arrogant sinner. You have heard the warning. Now hear the offer of grace. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. He, he says to his congregation in that sermon, I urge you then in the name of Christ, if by God's grace you can repent today of your sin, do it now because you may not be able to do so tomorrow. Do you see? Do you see? The, the utmost expression of arrogance and sin is to think that we can get away from it as soon as we want. Because we don't really think that it's that big of a deal. And we don't really feel the wrath of God against it on a daily basis. But please don't be like the buzzard who stands on the ice, eating and involved with the sin, until his feet are frozen to the ice, and we are plunged over the falls for which there is no return. That's the best illustration that I found about the passage and the, uh, the, 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 the thing that we've seen. Now, in light of all that we've said, not just about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, my time is up. What's the last point? Well, Jesus gives us this illustration or this uh, identification of who he really is. He gives it to us himself, but he doesn't stop there. Then he invites us to get it. He doesn't just tell us that if the Holy Spirit makes us known and if we continue to reject that we may, we may be unable to repent ever again and just sort of drop the hammer on us. He doesn't stop there. He invites us to get it and to believe and to trust in him. Look at verses 31. The story that we began with about his family picks back up. And then look at what it says. Then his brothers and his mother came, so they made it to him. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. They were trying to get him out. 
They, they were trying to captivate him. They were trying to bind him so that they could keep him from looking crazy. But look, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Your family wants you. What does Jesus tell them? But he answered and said to them, Who is my mother and my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat around him, and he said, Here are my brother and my mother. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What, what's he saying? Go, go back. Don't, don't get too caught up in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's important, but don't, don't, don't disappoint the passage. What's he saying? I am stronger than the strong man, and I have bound him, and I have come to free the prisoners. And he says, if you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as he enlightens your heart, if you will see me for who I am, and if you will believe in me as I am, and if you will trust me for who I am and what I've done, then you can be brought into my family. Do you see that? So it's a picture about family. Let us take sin very seriously. Let us grieve over our sin genuinely. If we're concerned here, maybe this morning, maybe you've got a sensitive heart and spirit and you're concerned, oh no, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin and what if I can't repent? I would encourage you simply to take courage. Your desire to be forgiven of it most likely means that you're not there. Repent today if you are able, for all blasphemies we utter will be forgiven. So let us be thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who teaches and enlightens us about Christ and also about our sin. And let us see him as he is, turning to him in repentance, receiving faith and salvation and hope this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ that you sent your only son to be with us, to Uh, bind the strong man that held us captive and to free us by grace. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in this congregation this morning, that he would be moving in and out of every pew, that he would be speaking to every heart, that he would be using this sermon and my attempts and this passage to inform every mind that we might have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. But then, Lord, as we are made to see and as we are given to taste, Lord, let us not harden our hearts and reject, lest we are not given the opportunity again. Give us a heart of repentance or help us to be humble before you. Lord, may we cry out to you for salvation and forgiveness. And God, may you be faithful to your promises to deliver it. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.